I like Q. There's a lot about Q that I like. In the end, I think that they're pretty misguided, but I like outsiders. Outsiders have the ability to look at society in sober terms. They also have the potential to, how shall I put it, self-inculcate in a way that inhibits them from absorbing rational thought. Before I begin, I want to share a disclaimer to the extent that I can. I'm going to share some troubling information that covers the question of conspiracy and ritual abuse. I basically want to distance myself from judging ritual abuse. Obviously, ritual abuse is bad. It is reprehensible. But I don't want to make enemies with the people who conduct themselves in this manner. It is their life and it is their souls. To the extent that women and children and adults and anyone are exposed to harm, there are law enforcement officers, lawyers and policymakers and civil society actors that are in place to address these questions. I'm doing my small part with this project. It's very ugly stuff. It's not polite to talk about. And so it gets swept under the rug. I'm already kind of revealing my cards. This is where I kind of agree with Q. But there's a lot about what Q does that I disagree with. And I think that they're pretty lost and disorganized. And that doesn't mean that they can't reorganize and reinvigorate to achieve objectives in 2024. In any case, I think it is dangerous to judge others, even if the act in question is quite troubling. I also have faith that the universe will address these matters through us and through nature itself. I want to make a further observation. Covering these issues is so unpleasant and exhausting, it lowers your vibration. To make matters worse, I'm worried that years from now someone will hear this track and judge me. My hope is that the discourse will have shifted and these issues will not be so uncomfortable or controversial. Again, consistent with my rising consciousness thesis, I think more and more people are basically aware of this shit. I don't want to dwell on it for too long. This essay and the uh, approaching essay that I'll do in the next couple months called The Grand Theory of Political Economy and Exopolitics are kind of where I'm going to leave the question of ritual abuse. I don't want to make a cottage industry the way that people like Alex Jones have. I respect Alex Jones. I think he made some mistakes with Sandy Hook and elsewhere. I think I've said this before, but he has been a uh, trailblazer on the issue. And he knows about all the other stuff, all the exopolitics stuff. If you ever watch his interview with Joe Rogan, it's pretty amazing and it's very interesting. And then, you know, a lot of people are going to dismiss him uh, for talking some heavy shit. I'm not one of those people. I've been a conspiratorial thinker for years, but I also tend to let it go periodically. You know, sometimes the problem of things today, they're so disgusting that you just have to sit with yourself. Walk, you have to walk away. You have to walk away from the filth. Okay, let me go ahead and get started. What is Q? Q and QAnon have a few core ideas. One, the cabal and the deep state utilize ritual blood sacrifice and or abuse, particularly involving children. Two, Trump is a uniquely qualified and informed leader who wants to confront this cabal. Three, Q and the QAnon movement has the destiny, bandwidth, 
networking, strength, knowledge, and most importantly, coordination talent and decentralized infrastructure to support Trump and to confront the cabal. Four, some component of Q is a state insider. Five, the institutions of the administrative state in the U.S. have been captured by the so-called deep state. So I'm going to cover each point. On point number one, I agree something is strange is going on with ritual sacrifice and the global elite. I don't want to address the details here because I will in the later essay called The Grand Hypothesis of Political Economy in Exopolitics. I also want to note that it's ironic, and I heard this even from a QAnoner himself, that in the early 80s it was the Republicans that were deeply involved in ritual abuse and pedophilia as much as anybody else. And I'm not providing text testimony on that. Again, that's in the other essay, the Grand Hypothesis essay. I had a meeting with Ted Gunderson in 2006 or seven, and he gave me a huge dossier on the subject. I couldn't keep the dossier. It was just too dark, but it had to do with the subject of ritual abuse. And uh, it, it transcends party. I assure you of that. It's out there. On point number two, I do not see Trump as a particularly well-qualified leader to do anything but advance his own cons. And even that he may no longer be able to do. He mostly leveraged the movement to some personal benefit, but it didn't even get him elected. I have made some efforts to find hard evidence that Trump was addressing ritual abuse or pedophilia. And here, here are some legitimately important things that he did do. So it's not so much that I'm defending Trump. I guess I am defending Trump. According to USA Today, Trump signed two executive orders in early 2017 regarding human trafficking and child trafficking. Also, according to USA Today, he made proclamations recognizing the issues in 2018, 19, and 20, and recognized the National Slavery and Human Trafficking Pre Prevention Month in January of each of those years. It is interesting that I believe these the establishment of this month started under Obama. That's a minor issue. According to ABC News in 2020, he signed an executive order to establish a new post in the Domestic Policy Office to specifically combat human trafficking, also allocating $400 million to this aim. He also had some additional efforts during the Trump years where the U.S. Marshals Service helped locate missing children such as under Operation Not Forgiven in Georgia, Operation Safety Net in Ohio, as well as interagency efforts such as Operation Reclaim and Rebuild in California, as well as under the National John's Suppression Initiative. But these efforts likely extend from ongoing efforts such as the creation of the Missing Child Unit and the 2015 Victim of Trafficking Act under Obama. Here is my point. I tend to see conservative media and alternative sources cataloging successful law enforcement efforts and attributing them to Trump, when in fact it's not clear that he particularly was critical to the effort. But still, the Trump administration deserves credit in playing his role. I am certain I can find yet more evidence of Trump doing the right thing on these issues. But the key issue I want to get at is that it's not like he made some major communications effort to say that ritual abuse was an issue or pedophilia was an issue. He may have touched on it in some context that I'm not referring to, but let's be fucking serious. The guy didn't make it a real serious communications effort. And I think that that's what Q is trying to say, or that he did it in a secretive manner. You can't do it in a secretive manner. You got to get out there and do it the right way and do it in front of everyone. That's the only way it counts. That's how Ted Gunderson did it. And that's how others have done it. That's how Alex Jones has done it. So I don't know why people think that Trump is somehow uniquely well qualified to confront this issue.
Point number three, I also don't think that the Q movement has any real agency or strength to achieve its stated objectives. The most effective aim it has executed was the January 6th violent protest. And I think the movement had a great deal of help in achieving whatever was achieved on January 6th. They may have very much been coordinating to achieve that objective on the 6th. And that would be impressive, to be frank. But this notion that there's a quiet storm and all this sort of language about, you know, it's all coming or that there's these arrests going on that we don't all know about because they're hush-hush. I mean, some people even go so far as to say that uh, people have died in trials, that Clinton has been killed and she's a clone. That's fine. Honestly, I don't judge really outlandish theories, but I don't see the impact on society or politics in a really concrete fashion. So I don't see this power or this effectiveness in the communication strategy that other QAnoners believe that their movement has. It seems a very weak movement in that regard. Now, January 6th kind of changes the, changes the score a little bit, and it's possible that come 2024, these people are going to really succeed in orchestrating some events. They may just be beginning. For instance, we can see a frightening analogy between the January 6th event and the Beer Hall Putsch of 1923 Germany. Indeed, I see many analogies between the evolving Nazi party and Q. They provided alienated people with a political and ideological home and identity. They radicalized these people through cryptic messaging and mass propaganda and they're unifying sexually and economically frustrated men and perhaps even women. And I know that that's a very new, you know, that's a very, that's a brutal statement about this group, but I kind of see that as how they are. I think these are people that don't have great healthy relationships in their lives. And I get it. It's hard. It's hard to have healthy relationships at this day and age. In any case, I'm sympathetic to their situation. Um, and I'm being totally fucking real. But I don't think it's fair to channel your economic and personal frustrations into some bizarre political movement. On point number four, I have no idea if Q is a true government insider. Uh, I will assume that he is or she is for the time being. What's interesting about the documentaries by HBO and Vice is the notion that it's really a network of events and a network of people that helped create Q. And it was sort of picked up at different times by different people. I think that's also an equally meaningful thesis. Point five, the question of deep state capture deserves serious attention due to its complexity. First of all, when we talk about deep state, we have to, we have to be careful. The Q movement and right-oriented media, such as Fox News, tend to use this term with little precision. There are at least two important definitions. The scholarly notion of the deep state is simply that the state has its own autonomous agency, good or bad. The public notion of the deep state is that it is a nefarious set of aims. You know, the first definition, the scholarly one, is simply that the state has its own objectives. That's it. It's not some secret society held by liberals in smoke smoke-filled rooms, blah, 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 with nefarious aims. It's just that the state has developed its own identity away from uh, the people, per se, or away from its 
sort of democratic in- embeddedness. With the scholarly notion, a great deal of effective analysis can take. Any decent academic who studies U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, Southeast Asia, certain nations in Africa can determine that we exceeded any notion of democratic and reasonable behavior in order to achieve essentially ideological and corporate objectives. In this sense, we see state capture. It also meets the notion of a misbehaving deep state. In truth, it is a very murky situation when you consider all the factors, especially when we incorporate the question of manifest destiny, Christianity, socialism, and U.S. exceptionalism. In this case, one person's deep state is another person's rightful aim. As well, in that case, the deep state is much more closely aligned with the interests of conservatives. Although plenty of liberals were more or less for manifest destiny and for uh, mistreatment of, of, uh, of uh, other nations during the 20th century for corporate, corporate benefit. Let me elaborate on my, my point. I might edit this part out, but let me elaborate. We already have significant evidence within mainstream media and the academy that various conspiracies occurred in the 20th century. Consider COINTELPRO, the Tuskegee experiment, Iran-Contra, the drug war, etc. And as you go into more problematic conspiracies, the mainstream media starts to fall apart, as does the academy. They both basically can't consider these issues effectively. And it almost certainly has to do with the fact that their funding comes from the mainstream portion of society that's incapable of taking a sober look at society. And that's why fringe groups such as Q and other independent thinkers such as myself are able to look at these things. But I still don't think that Q uses that term, the deep state, properly. It's a very specific academic term when it's used properly. As individual thinkers, we can't be lazy. We have to try to operate at the level of scholars. We must. Uh, It sounds silly, and uh, you might not have the education for it, but you can build an education with yourself. You know, plenty of autodidactics can achieve a great deal. Um, and plenty of failed, people who have failed in academics move on to do great things. Malcolm Gladwell was not a great academic. And he's a very influential thinker today. Let me drive this point home again. The Cube movement does not take a scholarly approach. It does not try to de- deconstruct these various questions to reach sound and reasonable observations. I have a lot of problems with the Democratic Party, but vilifying them as socialists illustrates how little you know about socialism and the Democrats. While I do agree ritual abuse almost certainly occurs, and there's evidence to be found about that, and I will share that evidence in an upcoming segment, not on this episode, I believe both parties have this potential behavior in their DNA. And this goes back to uh, Bush 41, uh, maybe Clinton. I have no idea what Clinton's up to. She seems like a strange person. There's no doubt about that. The, the Clinton death list or whatever, the murder list or whatever, or whatever that you want to talk about, it seems pretty legitimate. In any case, these are things that need to be addressed carefully, as I will attempt to do in a future essay. My point is the way people use that term, the deep state, is bullshit. Fox News uses it like a bunch of fucking bums. They have no sense of history, economics, political theory, anything. And they're going around talking like they're fucking intellectuals. And it's irritating. So I'm going to go into a couple deeper, bigger criticisms of Q. 
The question of sloppy analysis on the part of Q gets to a bigger question. Aliens, ritual sacrifice, and global conspiracy are indeed interrelated and legitimate issues of discussion. But I don't think that they're the ones doing it. I don't think that they're looking at this issue carefully. I also think that ordinary diplomacy, foreign policy, politics, corruption, conflict, and human error have a role in our existential situation, both in the U.S. and globally. Criticism number two. Another criticism I have of the Q movement is that I see an ineptitude in their planning and a cowardliness in their anonymity. I find it almost as likely that left operatives could have created Q to diffuse real political forces on the right. I find it. I also find it interesting that the, the brass tacks concrete organizing in Georgia of Stacey Abrams was much more effective than anything Q did in, in Georgia. And, and then that's a great way of analyzing Q. What did they really actually achieve? Now, as I said earlier, they might be growing in potency. And January 6th may be just the beginning. And as I said, there's an analogy with the Beer Hall Pooch of 1923 with Nazi Germany. It was pre-Nazi at that time, but it was the Nazis getting ready to go. And again, getting back to this notion of sealed indictment claims and successful arrests and, and, and executions, it's all nonsense. It's just a bunch of fucking nonsense. I see no evidence of any of it. And I don't mind crazy ideas. I just need evidence. Criticism number three, a final and dominant criticism I have is that truth, accountability, and meaning itself are all suffering under the Q movement. Mainstream society is becoming a vacuous notion in its own right. And Q spots that accurately. Legitimate issues of conspiracy and state capture, which Q sort of and kind of addresses, are ripping society apart, along with economic and emotional alienation, which may deepen under technological automation. But in this breakdown of society, people are grabbing onto whatever they can, ideologically, without proper analysis. Sadly, the right has succeeded in undermining public education for years, and predictably, people have shit skills and talent for research and discernment. Ultimately, in my opinion, whenever you engage in counterintelligence, you introduce the possibility that you will get lost in either your lies or your adversary's lies. Q is a shit show, a low-budget counterintelligence effort, and a so-called PSYOP. It has left its followers lost, in my opinion. The Q journey has been fascinating and has involved many valuable lessons. QAnon clearly is the grandchild of some interesting efforts. Based on watching the Vice documentary and the HBO documentary, you get a sense of how it or how it developed. From something awful to 2Channel to 4chan to Anonymous to Cicada 3301 to Gamergate and 8chan. And I had watched some of these different things evolve. You know, I remember learning about 4chan I remember learning about Cicada. Hoback does a better job, in my opinion, on this point. Advice is still quite helpful. The evolving achievement here, intention or not, is decentralized yet coordinated action to achieve certain aims. And that is something real. Let me not take that away from the movement. There is an author by the name of Martin Geddes, and he's of the opinion that it's basically world historic. I don't know that it's world historic. I just simply think it's a reflection of using the internet. You know, it would have to be world if if it did create the what it what the movement claims that it's going to create, 
then it would be world historic. But I think more likely, it's just going to go potentially down the Nazi path, and it's just going to bring out a bunch of filth and uh, really the desire to control others, not a real desire to elevate one's consciousness or to elevate a society's consciousness, which is particularly hard. It's hard enough to elevate one person's consciousness, and it's better to elevate a group of people's consciousness, maybe 30 people get their consciousness going by working together within that group. But once you try to elevate the consciousness of an entire society, it's a pretty tall order. As for who Q is, I don't think it matters, particularly now because Trump's influence is at best in hibernation. It may come roaring back, as Hitler's did during the 1930s, if we were to build on the beer hall putsch analogy. But I'm inclined to lean in the direction of how Vice sees this question as a hybrid event that started as a LARP that was co-opted for political purposes by people like Michael Flynn. That is my gut feeling, but I don't really know. I think the Watkins played a role in contaminating the original procedures of Q, but we don't know the full story there either. Again, until Trump can reestablish himself in legitimate policymaking, or he can undermine legitimate policymaking so successfully people turn away from legitimate institutions of civil society, the identity of Q will not matter. And even if Q and Trump do emerge from the failures of the election and the frustrations of January 6th, they have always exhibited a degree of ineptitude. That does not mean they're completely impotent. Trump is most effective through his charisma, not through ordinary means of effectiveness. It's in his charisma where he thrives. Fortunately or unfortunately, as much as I do not like the Q movement, I don't identify with QAnons and Bakers, and I don't like the alignment with certain interpretations of white nationalism. I see some qualities in the Q movement that almost redeem it, but ultimately fall short. It is an anti-intellectual movement, and that is troubling. I started this effort with an optimism to understand. In particular, I was reading a guy named Martin Geddes, and also listening to Robert David Steele. They were both selling QAnon as the single greatest information operation in human history. But in the end, I think people like Stacey Abrams were more effective in terms of impacting the last election. She and others, you know, across the Democratic Party, basically supported vote by mail. You know, vote by mail beat QAnon's whining on the internet. That's how I see it. That could change, you know. These people are not without capacity. And that charisma factor that lives in Trump, it also lives in the Q movement itself. If there's anything I would like to have covered more here, it's the Bakers. They deserve more attention. Some of them are thoughtful. They exhibit a degree of diversity, but again, they have put too much faith in a movement that rarely proved itself. Benjamin Fulford, who is not a Baker, he's a journalist that I followed years ago on and off. I tried to follow him. I tried to sort of glean something from him. He's been talking about mass arrests for years, and I don't see any evidence. Um, he called it the White Dragon Society, I think, something like that. And maybe it's out there, maybe it's real, maybe I need to do more research, but I, I, I don't see much real evidence. I can find evidence of a ritual abuse, and I can find evidence of a Great Awakening. And when I mean by a Great Awakening, I mean it in terms of uh, real spiritual consciousness, not something else. But I can't find a decent body of triangulated or corroborated multi-source evidence 
that Trump is sincere on these issues or that any major arrests took place anywhere on this subject related to ritual abuse. Let's talk about something a little more lighthearted. Capital in the 21st Century is a popular text written by French economist Thomas Piketty. It was originally published in 2013 with an English version to follow in 2014, followed later in 2019 by a documentary of the same name by Justin Pemberton. It's a wonderful documentary. This is not really a review so much as a recapitulation. I'm going to talk a little bit about the major themes of this documentary and then get more into the details afterward. A lot of it has to do with the notion that the earlier centuries, probably I think the 17th and 18th, we saw a landed aristocracy that had unfair power over people and the benefits to those people was very low. It very much had to do with the transmission of wealth through land and we may begin to see that type of trend if we haven't already seen it or if it never ever stopped another major theme is that what we are seeing are trends that came before world war one are re-emerging in the now that's going to be another major theme in this documentary and i guess a third major theme is is the core ideas so there's two other major questions and that is the question of wealth in its relationship to inequality. And we'll get to that in a moment. And then the other last question is the psychology of wealth and how it plays into all these trends that we're going to talk about. So I just wanted to sort of give a little miniature structure before I get started. The fall of the Soviet Union created a pendulum swing towards deregulation as well as a glorification of private property. So tells us the documentary. As we have come out of this time period, we also see a return of inequality, xenophobia, and nationalism, much like prior to World War I. So that's kind of how these ideas come to form, sort of a, a forward-looking approach to the 21st century and what might happen, as well as an examination of of the last 30 years. Piketty envisions the recreation of the 18th and 19th century structures of inequality in the now. The average life expectancy in the 19th century is 17. I'm not certain about the context of that statistic. It seems to me that it represents European life. It is a system without benefits, healthcare, or schools. It is a life of work, survival, and often mistreatment by landowners. Redistribution is not in the making. Wealth is a function of inherited land. Meanwhile, in the 19th century, we see a general social manipulation and the criminalization of labor freedom, which is an important principle of contemporary economic modeling. Here we see an analogy with the question of immigration and migrant freedom. Basically, Piketty is setting, setting the stage of understanding how this sort of landed aristocracy era is returning. That's basically what he's getting at. According to some, these structures haven't even changed very much over the years. According to Gillian Tett, U.S. managing editor of the Financial Times, who is interviewed in the film, this structure has not changed much as the elite have continued to ensure its privilege and power by monopolizing economic, social, and cultural capital. 
However, what we see is that rigid protection of elite opportunity coupled with the stress of extreme inequality can create the conditions for revolution. So let's go back a little bit. Let's look at World War One. World War One saw a shift in thought with regard to working people, women, and taxes. Also, we saw an increase in financial instruments, credit, and investment in stocks. What followed was the crash, bank failures, trade wars, an increased distaste for capitalists, the New Deal, unionism, and the consolidation of production to fight World War II. He makes an observation, an important one. A third of capital destruction in World War II is from bombing, another third is inflation, which arises from public borrowing, and another third from new regulations. And yet society and its relations are fundamentally transformed, argues Piketty. Here we see the realization of enlightenment principles, according to Lucas Chancel, economist and co-director of the World Inequality Lab. Support for centrist ideas on public good, regulation and taxation, and even socialist notions of nationalization strengthen. According to Kate Williams, professor of history, quote, for the first time, hard work and study can get you to the top, unquote. The middle class has arrived for the first time, at least in the modern Western history, one suspects. Enter the first oil shock and the wage price spiral where workers demanded more money and producers handed that burden back to the workers through higher prices. This time is also known for its high inflation and low growth, or as, once, as it was once called, stagflation. This is a well-known period in American history. Soon after this, globalization is a key phenomenon coming online. Meanwhile, the narrative of deregulation reemerges, as it had in the past. Also, according to economist Faiza Shaheen, we see a return of labor suppression, the reduction of labor share, and an increase in profit share in society. What that means is essentially that labor, the returns to labor of productivity is reduced and the returns to capital is increased. She attributes these shifts to power, power structures, not necessarily merit, but power structures. In the end, real wages were where they were a century ago, and life expectancy declined, according to the well-known economist Joseph Stiglitz. Society went forward, fueled by credit, until 2008. In the end, active stock speculators perhaps benefited the most in being able to buy the dip. Industrialists often had the salaries protected by the bailouts. Regular people trudged along. Media influence and a lack of campaign finance reform enhanced elite capture. And we see that across the planet. The internationalization of capital, low taxes, and tax evasion reign supreme especially among tech firms whose technology was funded by generations of public funding. These are all the observations coming out of this film. It's an amazing, this is an amazing documentary. One of the major focuses on this film is that the middle class owns a shrinking percentage of the wealth of this country, the United States, and other Western democracies. Again, Faiza Shaheen points out that in the face of various challenges, People have the promise of being a millionaire. Meanwhile, many people are falling into the gig economy, which often means no or fewer benefits. And that keeps them going. That keeps you focused on the prize. That keeps you pushing yourself. You know, And, I, and I've, I, that's an idea that I've had many times over. It's I, I wonder what keeps us from achieving, I don't want to say revolution, 
because I don't believe in revolution. But why don't we see more coordination to achieve a better political life? And I think we all kind of believe we're going to win the lottery. And it may be, you know, not literally, but sort of we're going to create an app or we're going to sell a movie or we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And that keeps us from coordinating with each other, maybe focusing more on better leaders to produce better policy. I think that's changing a little bit, but there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of things going on. The movements are going in every direction. There isn't a lot of coherence right now at all. The greatest interview in the film is with social psychologist Paul Piff. He points out that people who feel deserving of their privilege and success, regardless of how they got it, tend to further enforce that privilege, even to the extent that it undermines the welfare of others. Furthermore, he points out, it's not necessarily about being rich so much as being better off than others. These two ideas account for a great deal of discohesion and callousness in society. That adds to the notion of what I was getting at. Why aren't we seeing coordination? It's because people don't give a shit about others. And people tend to believe they are justified in their position above the next guy. He points out that this research applies universally. He also points out that being better off implies the perception of simply being better. That's a profound statement. That's why I think that this interview is the... It doesn't get into the economics per se of the film, but it gets into the psychology of the film and the profound ideas that are being shared here. This is sort of a, a deep cowardice among Americans and others about their fellow man. Another very important segment is with the ever-important political scientist Francis Fukuyama, as well as Reina Faruhar. He points out that you can't compare liberalization of capital versus liberalization of trade and goods and services, a.k.a. the real economy. She basically points out that Adam Smith's vision of financiers was that of a, an intermediary, not a core sector in the economy. And this is very much in line with what Fukuyama is saying, is that liberalization of the real economy is not the same as liberalization of capital. They need to be held in a distinct manner. Adam Smith could never imagine of a world now of a prominent financial sector and multinational corporations. She further points out that only 15% of the financial ecosystem funds productive work. Think about that. The implication is that speculation is one of the core activities of the financial sector. Piketty also says that the last three centuries of growth have been about 1.6 per year, and the annual rate of return on capital has been about 4 or 5%. If we own that capital more equally, we would not see the recreation of unequal structures and tensions with the middle class and lower classes. Reina Faruhar points out that two-thirds of people in advanced economies will be poorer than their parents, which she calls a mega-political trend. And thus, people are turning to scapegoats based on identity, such as immigrants, rather than the real culprits such as the ultra-rich and multinational corporations. We are seeing a repeat of the events prior to World War I. Piketty calls for more progressive taxes on capital and a correction on internal ownership rights. In other words, he's calling for a more aggressive death tax to prevent inherited wealth from circumventing 
investment in the real economy. More aggressive taxes on revenue itself will also have attendant political benefits. Political scientist Ian Bremmer makes an analogy between horses and humans at the end of the film. Horses lost their value in society as various industrial processes came online. He says humans may become equivalent to the horse, especially when capitalism is no longer about labor. So it's an incredible documentary. It basically argues some of the characteristics that came before World War One. we are seeing again now. That's sort of a short-term preoccupation in the documentary. And the other more long-term implication of the film is that under automation, the implications for human labor are not good. So it's an incredible documentary. It's the content of the episode. I encourage you to watch it in full. But I did a pretty decent job of covering everything that's in it. So that's it. I wanted to share that.